All right, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 11. Uh, Just a quick reminder, we're working our way through the New Testament really fast. We're trying to get it all done in five-ish years, give or take a couple Christmases and Easter's. And um, the way we're doing that is one chapter every week. Why am I seeing four? Chapter 13, what did I say? Chapter 11, I don't even know where, I'm filing that, that's different. Just kidding. Terrible joke. (laughs) All right, chapter 13, so that's why I was confused because Jack was holding up you know, this to me. I'm thinking, for what? What are the four things I'm looking for? Oh my goodness. So one chapter every week. Uh, The difficulty of doing one chapter every week is that there's a lot of stuff in any individual chapter. To help with that, uh, uh, I'm asking that you guys would be in the regular habit of reading through these chapters every day, basically, so it can begin to work in your heart and life before I ever get there. Uh, And then I want you to be in the habit of just asking yourself a couple of questions. And this is really any time you approach God's Word, whether it's in a sermon or whether it's in uh, your own reading or devotions, uh, conference, whatever you might be at. But just ask these two questions. What is God saying to me in His Word? And what am I going to do about it? In other words, we don't want to just grow in knowledge. We want our knowledge to change how we respond to the world around us. We want the Word of God to teach us things, but also be able to apply those things in the real world around us. And so uh, I think the Word of God is powerful enough to do that in all of our lives, and hopefully you guys do as well. Um, This is an interesting chapter. As you take these three sections together, I'm dividing in roughly three because it represents three different occasions. And so the first at the beginning of this chapter is going to be uh, more that we actually looked at in chapter 12. It it starts out in verse 1 of chapter 13, now on the same occasion. So that's referring to the same events that we saw last week. And then next you're going to see Jesus in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And then lastly, you're going to see Jesus continuing his journey to Jerusalem, going through various villages uh, and uh, dealing with questions. And, And the question that is most interesting to me in this chapter that I think we can relate back to each of these three questions or each of these three sections is a question that's going to be asked in verse 23. Someone asks him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And then he begins to answer that question. Uh, I think it's a fascinating question. And uh, part of the reason is I try to put myself in Jesus' circumstances when questions like these are asked. He's speaking, yes, to answer the question that's actually asked him by the person there. But he's also speaking in such a way that he can speak to his disciples that are present to teach them. He's also answering the question in such a way that the crowds will hear it and it would draw them to repentance. He's also answering the question with a view to prophecy, this idea that uh, many will hear but not everybody will understand. And so sometimes he would speak in parables and things. And then he's speaking so that 2,000 years later we could talk about it and still get some meaning out of it. So answering these types of questions for Jesus is sometimes kind of fascinating just to see how he works through that. Uh, But I do think we'll see in each of these sections different things he's going to talk about uh, that deal with the concept of salvation and help us get a better picture of how many will be saved. I think another aspect, by the way, of Jesus' answers, he has to answer in a way that the people listening won't overassume things about what he said. If you've ever been in a situation where people listen to you a lot, my life, right? You say something in a certain way, but every single person in the room is going to hear it through a different lens, right? And so I was thinking about this, the question of how many people are going to be saved. What if Jesus just gave him a number? 
It's going to be slightly over one trillion people. Well, that sounds like everybody gets saved, doesn't it? I don't know what the actual number is, but I'm just throwing that out there. He says this huge number like that, and you say that to somebody whose entire perspective of the world is this one village of 60 people that they're around all the time. A trillion people sounds like the whole world gets saved. Now you take it beyond just the population that they're used to, and you expand that out through thousands of years of history, however long mankind has been here, that would be a huge number. So he can't just say the number. He has to instead give them some principles so they can grasp the concept behind salvation. And really what he wants them to understand is it's not so much about how many are going to be saved. The question is, will you? That's what he really wants them to understand. So we pick it up here in verse 13. It says, now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the Galileans, uh, all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all men who lived in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. Uh, he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. So this is again on the same occasion of chapter 12. I, I want to remind you of the circumstances of chapter 12. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem where he's going to suffer and die. He already knows this is going to happen. It was revealed to him already. He's on his way to Jerusalem to die. It says in verse 50 of chapter 12 that Jesus is distressed by this. He's, he's overwhelmed by the circumstances. He knows he's leaving. He's got to train up his disciples. While he's trying to train up his disciples, there's this crowd of people pressing against him to hear everything. It says they're stepping all over each other to hear him. And they had no other choice. It wasn't like his sermons were amplified. He didn't have microphones, so they all had to press in close. So he's trying to train up these guys. It's all of this stress is going on around him. And you might recall from last week, over and over, as Jesus answered every question, essentially what he was trying to do is get them to look at it from an eternal perspective. Every circumstance that was brought up last week was, let's look at this from an eternal perspective and not just in the, in the moment. Well, he's going to do the same thing here. What happens in this case, it's again that same occasion, he's distressed and people are bringing all these different things to him. In this case, they bring a news report to him. Jesus, did you hear on the news? Oh, man, Pilate killed some Galileans and he mixed their blood with the sacrifices. I mean, this would have been scandalous. What a terribly scandalous situation that happened here. And we have to hear what Jesus thinks about the news. And Jesus says, well, I got one better for you. Did you hear about that tower that fell on a bunch of people? What do we think about those things? Well, let's look at them not from the now perspective, but from the eternal perspective. 
He's going to confront at least one idea that the Jews had is that some people suffer because they're worse sinners than other people. You remember the blind man? And that question was asked of Jesus, who sinned, him or his parents? That's why he's blind. That's what they're thinking. So Jesus is going to address that. He's basically going to say, these Galileans, they're not more sinful than any other Galileans. And when the Tower of Siloam fell on these people in Jerusalem, those people who got hit by the tower, they weren't any more sinful than anybody else in Jerusalem. Now, what he wants them to understand is that everybody is going to perish. I tell you, no one, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Everybody dies the same. Everybody dies in their sin. Everybody does. There's only one hope from that, and that is that we would repent. And for those who repent, let's shine eternity on that. Though we die, we do not perish. We live eternally in the presence of God. He's going to shine eternity into this situation. So this word repentance here becomes very important. And so you'll note that I have a a quote this week from noted theologian, 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 Bob Norris, uh, from his unpublished work, Big Salvation Words. Um, uh, This is his big idea for that. Repentance consists not of tears nor threats, but a changed mind and a turn towards God. Uh, This is the idea that Jesus is trying to draw out of the crowd. They're worried about the news. He's worried about their soul. He's trying to get them to bear fruit of repentance in their life, which in this case would be a turn away from the life that they're living, their understanding of the whole world, really, and it would be a turn towards God. They would begin to seek after God in all of these things. Now, repentance can have a kind of a double thought. Uh, In this case, he's talking big picture salvation. But certainly for Christians, there's also the smaller picture, picture individual items in my life that I need to turn away from. I need to change my mind about and turn away from. But in this situation, he's talking about the big idea of repentance, salvation, that we would turn away from going our own ways and we would turn towards God. He's going to illustrate that with a parable. It's the parable of the fig tree. Uh, and, And the idea is this fig tree was planted and for three years this dumb thing hasn't given any figs. It's a figless fig tree, which just makes it a tree, right? Like it's just, it's not useful. And so the guy that owns it says, man, I'm going to just cut this thing down. Why does it even exist? And the answer is given back to him, just leave it alone for one more year. We'll dig around it. We'll put in some fertilizer. If it bears fruit next year, great. But if not, it's going to be cut down. Well, what is the fruit, I would guess, that Jesus is wanting the people that he's teaching to bear? He wants them to bear the fruit of repentance. And for those who don't bear the fruit of repentance, they'll be cut down. It's a warning to the crowd that's around him. Again, Jesus was more concerned about the eternal things, which by the way, a great trick for evangelism, if you ever want to uh, uh, increase your skill in evangelism, great evangelists can turn pretty much any conversation into a gospel conversation. Uh, For those of us that aren't great evangelists, it's a little bit annoying to be honest with you, but uh, in a general sense, This is something that happens quite often. People ask me questions all the time about the news. Half the time I have to look it up because I don't know what they're talking about. So I'm already behind the eight ball. But in this case, what Jesus is saying, yes, the news might be important, but it's nowhere near as important as what's going on eternally. 
And so we could look at any news event and begin to ask heavenly questions about it. Let's take Ukraine, for instance. Ukraine is a horrible situation. It's a deadly situation. It's a difficult situation. There's international politics that go beyond my own understanding. How can a believer look at this from an eternal perspective, though? Well, we would look at this from an eternal perspective and not be surprised by the death and destruction. That's the history of the world. A believer would look at this and say, I'm so concerned for those who are perishing apart from Jesus Christ. And then turning to the person who asked the question saying, and how about you? What do you believe about Jesus Christ? Because you never know when war is going to break out around you. You never know when death is going to come. You just don't know. Let's get this settled now. Let's solve this now. You see, when it comes to the kingdom of God, repentance, turning away from the world, turning away from our own patterns of doing things and turning toward Jesus Christ is going to be so key in who enters into the kingdom of heaven and who will be saved, how many will be saved. It'll be those who are turning to Jesus Christ, which adds another level of difficulty, by the way. When Jesus answers these questions, you know what he can't say? Believe in the resurrected Jesus Christ and be saved. You know why? He hasn't died on the cross yet. He hasn't raised from the dead. And so he has to kind of speak in these codes and he'll say, well, I'll give you the sign of Jonah in the the belly of the fish for three days. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to be in the belly of the earth and then he'll come back again and people are just like, what is he talking about? Well, it's all going to make sense on Easter, right? It's all going to come clear. But that's the difficulty he has in asking these questions. But what he's trying to get out of them is that they would begin to look at things from this eternal perspective and to determine what it really takes to enter into the kingdom of God. Verse 10, this is a different occasion. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. There was a woman who for 18 years had a sickness caused by a spirit, and she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. But the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, There are six days in which work should be done, so come during them and get healed and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each one of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham, as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated, and the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. And so here again, we have a familiar scene. Jesus teaching on the Sabbath day in the synagogues. This could have been any synagogue. We don't know what city this is in at this point, but he's teaching on the Sabbath in a synagogue, but he kind of has to teach the same things he's taught on the other synagogues. And so what we saw Jesus often do when he would get to a synagogue, he would teach, but he would also be confronted with an opportunity to heal either of disease or demonic possession. In this case, the sickness is a combination. It's a sickness caused by an evil spirit. Uh, Again, something our modern minds aren't comfortable with grasping, that not every sickness has a purely medical reason behind it. Some sicknesses have uh, spiritual 
consequences and are caused by demonic forces or Satan himself. There is that piece of this puzzle that we don't really get too excited about in modern times, but it's a reality there. Uh, In this case, it is a little different though. Jesus picks her out for healing. Usually somebody else will mention the sick person and then Jesus will deal with it. But again, here he is today. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He knows time's short. He has to bring this information about. He sees this woman who is bent over and she's been like this, it seems, for 18 long years, which I think that would be a long time to be in that position. And Jesus calls her forward and says, woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he lays his hands on her. And immediately, she's able to stand up. And what does she do? She glorifies God. What does the crowd do? They're rejoicing over all the glorious things Jesus has done. What does the leader of the synagogue do? Complains to the woman that got healed. Now, remember, we've talked about healing a lot in the Gospel of Luke, and so we've been kind of collecting a number of reasons why Jesus healed people. Uh, We saw in Luke chapter 5 that uh, he healed them just so that they knew he had the power to forgive people. Uh, We've seen in other places that he fulfilled for the purpose of fulfilling Old Testament prophecies, why he healed people. But sometimes, as we see here, he heals them just so that people would glorify God. Other times, uh, he says that he did these things so that people would believe. Sometimes it's a show of compassion. Oftentimes, it's a response to their faith. Uh, And here, I would maybe add, if we wanted to add a seventh one to this list, I would say sometimes he just did it because he wanted to teach people a lesson. And in this case, he wanted to teach the leader of this synagogue and really everybody else who's listening, as well as his disciples, as well as us thousands of years later, that there was this misunderstanding of what it meant to rest on the Sabbath. Resting on the Sabbath was, of course, intended to put our focus and attention on God, but they turned it into a terrible thing, a difficult thing. And so Jesus heals, and what I think is great about this, this guy at the synagogue doesn't want to insult Jesus, so he insults the lady. You know, there are six days in a week when you could have come here to get healed, woman. Are you kidding me? My guess is she's been coming to that synagogue for 18 years and nobody's helped her at all. If I was Jesus, I would have turned it right back on him. Yeah, you're right. There have been six days every week for 18 years. Why didn't you heal her? Of course, because they don't have the power of God. Because they aren't the Messiah. Of course they didn't heal her. But in this case, Jesus did. And he just gives a very simple example. Look. You would untie your donkey to lead him to water on the Sabbath day. This woman's been tied to this illness for 18 years, and you're mad that somebody untied her on the Sabbath day? You love your donkey more than you love your neighbor. And then Jesus starts his little sermon. But he's already preached a whopper, hasn't he? He's going to give these illustrations, and it starts in verse 18 with the word, in the New American Standard, it's so, uh, in other versions it may say thus or therefore, but it's intending to give us this idea that what he's about to to teach somehow connects to what he's just said. And so he's going to give two simple parables in verse 18. So he was saying, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? 
It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and threw into his own garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in there, uh, hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. It's this picture of growth. What is the kingdom of God like? A small little mustard seed that grows into a tree. It's like leaven that goes, or yeast for our more modern ears. It's like yeast that spreads through all the dough. It's this picture of growing. Now, historically, there have been two interpretations of this. And the reasons there's two interpretations of this is because Jesus didn't interpret it for us here. Sometimes Jesus tells us what the parable means. I love those times. The disciples afterwards are like, okay, cool story, Jesus, but we didn't get it. Could you help us understand, right? And so Jesus will explain it in detail to them. In this case, there's no explanation left for us. And so it puts us in this place where we have to determine what it means. Uh, and I would say it as simply as this, is Jesus sharing these parables for a positive purpose or for a negative purpose? Now you could look at the context and say, well, this is negative because, and here's three reasons. Uh, it's negative because number one, it's a rebuke of the synagogue officials. Number two, because the picture of birds in scripture sometimes relates to the demonic. And number three, leaven is often a picture of sin. You could also look at it as positive, though, because in this same context, the entire crowd was rejoicing. And in the Old Testament, this quote that they give here in verse 19, the birds of the air nested in its branches comes from Daniel 4, Ezekiel 17, Ezekiel 31. In each case, those are positive references describing kingdoms that are growing. And then in the third case here with leaven, it doesn't always have to be sin. It could just be a picture of anything that is spreading. So you have to decide for yourself whether it's negative or positive. I lean heavily to the positive in this. I, that's what I believe it's teaching, and I know that it's not what everybody teaches there. Uh, but I believe it's positive. I think what he wants these religious leaders to see is that the kingdom of God is spreading, and it's growing, and it's bigger than you imagined. But what we're going to find out is it may not include them. And that's going to be the next question that's going to be asked. That's going to be the next section that we'll look at, uh, which will be on a different day or a different occasion at the very least. Uh, but that's the way I'm seeing this. What I'm seeing here is that the kingdom of God is growing. It's spreading. The evidence of the spread is the people rejoicing, not the religious leaders the people, the crowd begins to rejoice. And what are they rejoicing about? The glorious things that Jesus has done. Jesus is seeing the spread of his kingdom. And it's behind the scenes in ways that the religious leaders aren't really seeing. But this to me is describing the spread of the kingdom of God. Another reason I believe it's in the positive, um, I can't imagine the kingdom of God in any way being negative. Uh, so to take that other negative illustration, they would say the kingdom of God has grown so quickly and so largely that there are these false people hiding within that kingdom. Do you see the idea there? That there is sin hidden within the kingdom, which I would say on earth that's true. That on earth there are those who appear to be believers, and you could even say it was these Pharisees. But what I think is interesting is he describes the kingdom of God later in this chapter. He describes it not from an earthly perspective, he describes it from a heavenly one. And sitting around the table in the kingdom of heaven in verse 28, you've got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and a bunch of people on the outside looking in. 
They're not a part of the kingdom. And so I can't envision this idea that it was designed to show that the kingdom of God has been infiltrated by sin and by uh, spiritual forces of evil. That's the supposed kingdom of God, but it's not the real kingdom of God. Satan's not a part of his kingdom. Sin's not a part of his kingdom. Sin's been paid for. I look at it in the positive light. So there you go. Your pastor is an optimist. How's that? Verse 22. New occasion. He was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. Someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? He said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. He will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. They will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, some are first who will be last. And so he's looking now at this question, a pretty powerful question. Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And Jesus could have just said, yes, no. But he doesn't do that. He's so uh, creative in the way he answers these. And again, the reason I think he's being so creative in the way he answers these is he's speaking not just to the man who's asked the question. He's speaking to the crowds and he's speaking to generations. And he's speaking in a concept that they won't be able to grasp because all they know is what they know. They only know their little sphere of information. So he's answering it truthfully, but from us it'll sound like he's evading the question. It's a pretty simple question. In fact, if I was a reporter asking this question of Jesus and he gave me this answer, I would say, just answer the question, sir. (laughs) But what he's instead going to do is, again, try to change that perspective. Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? Verse 24, strive to enter the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. He's telling them two important things there. First, almost the inverse of the question, he's saying there are many who will not be saved. Hasn't answered whether or not there'll be many who are saved, but there are many who will not be saved. And why is it that they won't be saved? Because they didn't go in through the narrow door, which, by the way, is an answer to the universal Unitarian who says there's many ways of salvation. You can go through Buddha, or you can go through uh, holistic meditation, or you can go through Jesus if you want to, but there's so many cooler options. That's kind of the universalist idea, that everybody's saved somehow. And you can believe whatever you want. Jesus says, no, the door is actually quite narrow. You need to make sure you're going through, you need to strive to make sure you're going through the narrow door. 
If you were to envision it this way, if you walk up to a wall and there's a thousand doors on the wall, and one of them leads to heaven, some people would just say, oh, just pick any good door. It doesn't matter. As long as the door opens, it's good enough. But you don't know what's on the other side. People are opening and going through doors that don't lead to salvation. Jesus says the way is narrow. He talks about this in other places. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one gets to the Father except for me. He's that narrow door. You see, in the Gospel of John, he describes himself as the gate into the sheepfold. He is the door of entrance. It's only through Jesus Christ and anybody who's trying to enter into the kingdom of God in any other fashion except through faith in Jesus Christ, they're not going to be entering. And Jesus is not worried about how many are saved He's more concerned about how many aren't saved. And honestly, he thinks that the person asking the question should be concerned about that as well. That's the bigger question. There's just so many who aren't saved. And by the time they realize they've gone to the wrong door, it might be too late. And so he describes this Again, a parable of the door being closed. The head of the household gets up. He shuts the door. Everybody outside realizes they want to come in through that door now. And they begin to knock at the door. Lord, open up to us. A weird answer. I don't know where you're from. Why would that matter? Where they're from. Why would that matter? Again, They'll respond to him, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. He'll say, I tell you, I don't know where you're from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. The idea here, twofold, from the perspective of that one trying to enter, and, and maybe even this questioner, the questioner could say, well, of course I'm going to heaven. Jesus came to my hometown. He, I was there while he was teaching. Of course I'm saved. Jesus' answer to that is, I don't really care where you're from. It has no impact on your salvation, which to the Jew would have been new information. <laughs> you, you mean we're not just magically saved because we're Jewish? You know we're from Israel, right? Jesus says, you know, question of citizenship doesn't even come up at the doorway into the household of God. The question of your heritage doesn't even matter. All that matters is that you enter in through the way, the narrow door, the sheep gate through Jesus Christ. It's the only way to enter into the kingdom. And so there are many people who think they're going to be saved but they're trying to go in through the wrong door. That's the issue here. He doesn't know where you're from. Depart, he says. And then he gives that picture in verse 28, which I, I think would be eerie for some. In those days, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you look in from outside at the dinner party that's all been gathered in the kingdom of heaven and you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and, and you've been saying through your whole life, well, I am of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm Jewish. Don't you know my heritage? But there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth because you yourself will be thrown out. 
again, I think, a warning to the crowd. Don't think because you know Abraham that you're one of God's people. Abraham is not the doorway. He's not the narrow gate. He's not the narrow entrance. Jesus is. Don't think because you know Isaac or Jacob. You have to know Jesus. He's the only way into the kingdom of God. It's the only way. But here's the surprising part, and this is why I think Jesus isn't saying that there are only a few who will be saved. In verse 30, he says, Behold, oops, verse 29, he says, They will come from east and west and north and south and recline at the table of the kingdom of heaven. It's a phrase that's intended to help the Jewish people recognize that it won't be just them. It'll be people from all corners of planet earth who will be saved. All corners of planet earth. And in the end of the words, it's an extension of the gospel to the non-Jew, to the Gentiles. And there will be some who, who maybe even saw Jesus personally. They just didn't believe he was the Messiah. They didn't have faith in him for salvation, but they saw him personally, and they grew up in Israel, and they went to synagogue, they followed a bunch of religious rules. When it comes to the kingdom of heaven, they're going to be watching all these Gentiles who didn't follow any of the rules and weren't born in the right places, didn't have the right mom and dad. They have all the wrong heritage. They're going to see those people hanging out with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, They're going to be flustered. They're going to be frustrated. They're going to be overwhelmed. Because again, the kingdom is hidden in three pecks and it's growing. And it's like a mustard seed that's been planted and it's growing. It just might not be growing in the way you expect. The kingdom of God is entered in through a repentance, turning away from yourself and turning towards Jesus Christ. The narrow entrance into the kingdom regardless of your background, regardless of your heritage, regardless of whatever religious practices you've been involved in. None of those things will equal salvation, only faith in Jesus Christ. That's ultimately what Jesus is trying to warn this crowd. Again, same occasion, verse 31, just at that time, some Pharisees approached saying to him, go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next, um, next day, for I can't, it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those uh, whom he sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. I I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, let's first start out with the lie in verse 31. A Pharisee has come up to Jesus and told him to leave because Herod wants to kill him. Now, you might think to yourself, Sean, how do you know that's a lie? Surprisingly, it's not just because a Pharisee said it. (laughs) 
It's a lie because later in this same book, in chapter 23, Jesus will stand before Herod. Number one, Herod won't put him to death. He'll send him off to somebody else. But it tells us specifically there in, verse 20, or in chapter 23, in verse 8, Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some signs performed by him. Herod didn't want to kill Jesus. He wanted to see the show. He wanted the magic tricks that everybody else was getting to enjoy. So Jesus' response to this Pharisee, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures. Jesus knew what Herod wanted. He wanted to see the show. And essentially, Jesus is saying, if Herod wants to see me, tell him to come find me. I'm not going anywhere yet. But he does have a purpose, a direction. He's on his way to Jerusalem. It started out with that in verse 22, proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. This chapter ends with the same idea. Jesus wants to go to Jerusalem, but he knows when he gets there that that's where he's going to die. It's already been revealed to him at the Mount of Transfiguration that this was the plan. This was the purpose. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die. And anybody that tries to divert him from that plan needs to understand that they're not helping him. They're not saving him. They're not even helping their religious establishment. Jesus has to go to Jerusalem to die. Because apart from his death, there's no forgiveness from sin. There is no eternal life for anyone. Jesus' death is that important. I love the imagery here. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and the stones. I'm sorry, and stones those who sent her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not have it. Jesus has been trying to get their attention. They're just not ready for him yet. And so he tells them that they won't see him again until the day when they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is exactly, by the way, what they will say in chapter 19 when Jesus gets to Jerusalem. And the crowds begin to sing, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. In chapter 19, verse 38, Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Unfortunately, it's a small group that does that compared to what Jesus could have or should have expected. The religious leaders ultimately are going to reject Jesus. They're going to betray Jesus. And they're going to convince the Roman occupiers, to put him to death. He wants to gather Jerusalem together, but they're not ready yet. And so we look forward to a second gathering, the second coming of Jesus Christ, when ultimately Jesus will be recognized for who he is, and he will come as that conquering king that we look forward to in heaven. So here's your homework for the week. Uh, maybe I'll give you an extra set of homework assignments this week. Number one, my first homework assignment with this, make sure that your only hope for salvation is that you're hoping in Jesus Christ. Examine yourself and ask that question first. When I ask, or people ask me, how do I know that I'm going to be saved? Do I start making a list of my good deeds? Do I tell them about what grandma and grandpa used to believe? Or do I say that I have faith in my Savior, Jesus Christ? But after you've done that homework... We'll get to our regular homework. Our regular homework every week is I want you to have a conversation about this chapter with somebody, with anybody. This is your opportunity to begin to grow in your own faith, but also to disciple others. So you've now 
assumably read through the whole chapter every day in the last week. Maybe you didn't get every day, but you read it a number of times. At the very least, you heard or stayed awake for portions of a sermon today, so you got something, right? With this understanding that you're supposed to hear what God has to say to you. So that's how you start the conversation. You know, I've been in chapter 13 this week, both in my own devotional life and in my sermon at church, and I saw some things in there that caught my attention, some things that I really need to pay attention to. Some things that I need to be thinking about. I don't know what that is for you. Maybe for you it's that we need to understand, although there are many who are saved, there are many who are not. Maybe we need to pay attention to that. Maybe we need to look at the news in a more eternal perspective. Maybe we need to examine our own things of what it is that we say we're standing on for our salvation. How will we communicate that to other people? How is it that we can turn conversations into eternal conversations like Jesus did? I don't know what it is for you guys, but have that conversation with somebody. Now you're on the hook for it because you told somebody else about it, right? But then the second part of that conversation is, what has God been saying to you in his word lately? And now you've got a real good opportunity for a spiritual conversation with somebody. It could lead to evangelistic opportunities if they're unbelievers. It could lead to discipleship opportunities if they are believers. It could be the same people every week. It could be different people every week. You might think you're chickening out by just, I'll just have this conversation with my kids. We'll just do this at the dinner table. That's not chickening out, that's parenting. Have this conversation with your kids. By the way, they're getting the same chapter in Sunday school today. Trying to keep every age on the same page. Not easy, by the way. Sunday school teachers, we put them in a hard spot and they're doing a great job. So just know that. (laughs) Beyond that, though, I want you to be prepared for next Sunday. Read Luke 14 every day this week. It's a little bit longer of a chapter, but read that chapter. Oh, no, not 14. 15 gets longer. Chapter 14 is only 35 verses. That's nothing. Read through chapter 14 this week and prepare your heart so that you're ready to hear from God. And then you start to recognize as you do that, if you read that passage every day throughout the week, you start to realize that God is going to speak to you in his word even when Pastor Sean's not around. And that's where you really begin to fuel your faith. When you understand that you can hear from God in his word. That's powerful, guys. That's where real growth happens, I think. If you're really a cool guy and you really have great skills, try to memorize a verse from each chapter. And then recognize how God brings those verses to your mind at just the right time. Amen? Well, let's close in worship. Heavenly Father, so thankful for today and this chance to be in the word. Uh, Every week, there are things that you want to speak to us, Lord. Just give us ears to be able to hear those things. Father, maybe even it's just through my repetition, my weekly begging, that people would get in the habit of preparing to hear your word, of seeking it out for themselves, of learning that they can grow in their faith. They don't need a guru. They don't need a special book. They don't need anything other than you and the word. As they do that, they then will get to see that they can come and fellowship with other believers are also growing in their faith and that'll spark them encourage them ignite a flame in them father if there's anybody here who is hoping in anything other than your son jesus christ for salvation my prayer would be that today would be a day for them of salvation that they wouldn't go through the broad gate that leads to destruction 
they would look through that narrow door, the way, the truth, the life, your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we thank you. We love you today in Jesus' name. Amen.